2: To terrify.
3: Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin. These nights are getting muggy in these parts of Virginia, aren't they? Well, I have a little bit of real-life horror for you. In the show notes, I've linked to an article at the Smithsonian in which they recount the restoration of some dolls made by Thomas Alva Edison way back in 1890. The laboratory that was able to restore the recordings made these recordings available to listen to by the public. If you already heard these, I'll apologize for inflicting them on you again. Here's one of them. If you're thinking that folks more than a 100 years ago couldn't wait to buy a doll for their kid that sounded terrifying, you'd be wrong. The Smithsonian quotes Ron Cohen from the New York Times, claiming that pretty much no one bought them because of how horrifying the sound coming out of these dolls were. If that wasn't enough for you, follow the link and you'll find more to listen to. Speaking of recording creepy voices, I have a message for you from our editor, Philip Oldham. We need a few more active narrators. Do people tell you that you sound creepy? Do children run away from you while read aloud? Do you have the ability to record your voice? Tales to Terrify has a way for you to channel your gift for the betterment of the horror genre. Tales to Terrify is currently accepting auditions for new narrators. If you're an aspiring voice actor, want to expand your portfolio, a bitter veteran of the audio production world willing to stick it to Audible by doing pro bono work, or just curious to read horror aloud, please submit your edition. Auditions should be between 5 and 10 minutes, edited for quality and submitted in mp3 format to tales to terrify at gmail.com. All work in the District of Wonders is a labor of love. None of us get paid, so if you're looking to expand your talents or gain the experience to work in the voice talents fields, please contact Phil Oldham at talesofterrify at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. On to fiction. Our first story will be from Grant Stone. I think that the last time we heard from Mr. Stone was back in episode 137, our baby teeth episode featuring works from those New Zealand folks. Sometimes I do feel a bit silly remarking about the temperature in the middle part of the U.S. of A, knowing that we've got a good handful of folks listening in Oceania, and as of this recording, they're about 40 degrees cooler than where I've huddled near this microphone. 19 degrees difference if you're using Celsius like most of the people in the world. Like most of his generation, Grant Stone blames his parents. In this case, that's a very good thing. His father was an English teacher and his mother taught second grade, so his profession as an author shouldn't come as a surprise, even though it's taken almost four decades to realize. More importantly, his parents took their three sons, Grant being the oldest, on endless summer vacations, camping all across America as a kid. Is it any wonder he caught an unquenchable case of wanderlust? Grant graduated with a triple business degree, accounting, marketing, and management, but his career has always focused on writing and exploration. For over a decade, he's worked as the editor on Crystal Cruises' luxury vessels, traveling to hundreds of destinations in over 145 countries. At the mention of Zing, Grant will probably grow an irrepressible grin. At this point, he's the only one who truly knows everything Zing because he's written Winter, Spring, Summer, and Fall. He's keeping the secrets, but he can't wait to share the entire series. Mr. Stone's story for the evening will be
4: Wood. I am M, a puppeteer. You will not have heard of me. Forgive me if I do not dwell on further biography. I have much to say, and there is little time. But where to begin? Ah, with the oranges. Three days ago, I was ensconced in my usual spot, a corner of the market away from the noisier stalls. A gaggle of children sat at my feet, entranced. Rabian, my marionette, was serenading them with lyrics of my own devising, set to a melody I stole from a bawdy tavern song. From the other side of the square, I heard shouting, then a crash. I looked up in time to see a carriage, bearing the duke's standard, disappearing through the harlot's gate. A river of oranges rolled across the cobblestones. The carriage had caught the edge of a market stall and tipped it. Old Preshan, the fruit seller, shouted and grabbed his crotch in insult. But he stopped that quick enough when another carriage rattled through, squashing fruit under its wheels. The children cheered and raced off, some trailing the carriages, hoping for thrown coin others scooping up as many oranges as they could. There were cries of disappointment as the second carriage left the square. Gaben, one of the older children, walked back to me, splashing water from between the cobbles with his bare feet. He was not, strictly speaking, a street lad. His mother worked the costamonger stall and was content for him to tarry as he pleased. Mam says they're coming for the spectacular. Come from all over, Mam says. "'I placed Rabian in his case. "'Your ma'am's right.' "'He wiped his nose on his sleeve. "'Saw a bear come in last night. "'Led in on a chain. "'Didn't half set the dogs to barking.' "'I nodded, not listening as I pushed the few coins "'I'd collected that morning into my purse. "'Enough for a few beers, at least. "'Are you performing in the spectacular? "'The Duke has no need for a humble puppeteer. "'But you're the best.' I'm not a dancing bear, though, am I? I closed the case and made my way across the square to the Broken Line, the closest tavern I had not yet been thrown from. It was a small place, and dark. I stood just within the doorway, waiting for my eyes to adjust, and my nose to get used to the stench of stale oat beer. The proprietor of the Broken Line stood behind the bar, cleaning a pottery jug with the front of his shirt. Occasional Jackie was called given that occasionally he'd lash out at paying patrons for no apparent reason. There were stories of how he'd come to own the place. He'd won the bar throwing alley dice. Or a poker game, perhaps. The rumour I thought most likely to be true was that he'd walked in one day, liked the look of the place, and commenced to kick the living shit out of the previous owner. I slid a couple of coins across the bar, and occasional Jack picked them up with a grunt. I sneered at Gaben's estimation. The best. Best what? Puppeteer? Fuck that. I'd had dreams once that my art would make me famous. Not out in the fields, of course. The streets of Youngston were paved with gold, they'd said. People who had never been more than a day's walk from their mum's hovel. But I was young and bored. So I spat in my palm and smoothed down my hair and came east. Turns out they were right. There was gold in the streets. I saw it every morning when I pissed out my window. I held up two fingers and occasional jack-slammed two more flagons down in front of me. I traced a finger through the beer spilled on the bar. Gaben's words still chewed at me. True, my station at present was pitiful. But was I not an artist? I slammed another empty flagon down on the bar and ordered another. Rabian would be no good. The thought of presenting myself to the revels master with the marionette I used to entertain urchins? No. I needed something new. It would not be enough to make the audience laugh. The bears would do that. Let them dance, the stupid hairy bastards, I shouted to nobody in particular. I am an artist. Can a bear? I stood and spread my arms to address the other patrons. Can a bear make you feel love, horror, heartbreak? I'll make you feel something in a minute, someone called from the back, and laughter ran through the room. I was about to march over and break my flagon over the bastard's head, but I caught occasional Jack's eyes and sat back down instead. It was true, though. I was more than a trained animal. I would audition for the Revels Master. More, I would deliver them a performance of such heart-rending beauty that every face in the room would be streaked with tears. When they finally shoved me through the door and barred it behind me, I knew what I would do. The streets were empty as I staggered away following the carver's path downhill. The gate was open and unguarded, as always. Nobody had tried to bring arms against the city, since the Duke did to the previous ruler of Youngston what occasional Jack had to the last owner of the broken Line. Life is never a gift, I thought. The best of it must always be taken. The eastern wall was ten times my height bottom to top, but it had been left to ruin. The stones were thick with moss, though in the past week a half-hearted attempt had been made to apply a fresh coat of whitewash. No guards were posted. The other side of the wall was just as ill-kempt. Every time I came this way, the forest seemed to be a little closer to the city walls. The full moon shone above the trees, lighting the way ahead. The moon had traversed a quarter of the sky by the time I reached Neom's hut. Neom yawned as he opened the door and ran a hand through the grey-streaked hair. He didn't seem surprised though it had been years since I'd knocked on his door. I held up the wineskin I'd bought and he opened the door wide. I kissed him and then, before he could say anything, pushed him back into the hut. A simple table and chairs occupied the middle of the single room. Neum's woodworking tools sat neatly in shelves above the bench. His axe rested against the wall by the door. Against the back wall, half hidden in shadow, was an ornately carved bed more like something the duke would lie on than a woodcutter. Nehem had carved the bed himself, same as he had built his hut. I pushed him again, down to the bed, and reached between his legs. You told me of a tree once, I said afterwards. Nehem stared up at the ceiling, hands laced behind his head. There are a lot of trees in the forest. Only one like this. You come all the way out here in the middle of the night to ask me about trees? I ran a hand down his chest. You know what I came for. But now I cannot sleep. It was a plausible lie. Nehem could spend days not speaking to another person. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, when he spoke, it was with the voice of a poet. I had been lulled to sleep by his words many times. Nehem sighed. My father told me this long ago. A witch lived, once, in the very deepest and sun-starved herd of the forest. Women visited her hut during the day, for herbal cures, love potions. To have their fortunes told, I said. He had told it to me so many times it had become a litany. I had learned my lines years ago, lying in his arms. There was comfort in hearing, and speaking, familiar words. By night the men would come for something else. A tenuous situation, I said. Niam nodded. When her belly became too big to conceal, she told the women a story. There was, she said, a spot when the river curved around a large rock. Above it, with roots extending on one side into soft earth and on the other side dipping down into the water, lived a tree. Lived a tree. A curious phrase. Indeed. But that is what she said. As if the tree had a choice in its location. As if, had it desired, it could move somewhere else. This was a spot the witch knew well. A particular type of mushroom grew in the shadows under the rock. Then one day, as she bent down and dug her fingers into the soft loam, the tree reached down and touched her. A gust of wind, perhaps? So she thought. But as she gathered up the last of the mushrooms, a voice whispered in her ear. The end of the branch curled like a fern frond, and moved slowly up her trembling arm. She stayed. After that, she was a frequent visitor to the rock in the bend of the river. Pregnant, to a tree. They could not believe that, surely. Some did, perhaps. Others? Neam shrugged. Better to believe an impossible story than wonder if your husband was responsible. No matter if the women believed it or not. They told the story they had been told. It spread. The women knew the story was protection, for the witch and for them. But men are not women, and it was a man who ended the story, the father perhaps, taking steps to hide his infidelity, or a superstitious one, believing the story and afraid of what was growing. One morning a group of women arrived to find the walls of the hut rent by heat and the bones of the witch lying scorched in her own fire pit. Something was growing in the ashes beneath her ribcage. I rolled off the bed and rummaged the dirty crockery on the bench, poured my wine into two dirty bowls. None were accused of the crime? Neum took the bowl with a grunt of thanks. Not to my knowledge. It was forgotten. Those same women who took such pleasure in telling the story fell silent as it spread ever wider. Like ripples in a pond, I thought. Look for the still point in the centre if you want to find the stone that was dropped. This is a story your father invented to stop you straying too far into the forest, I said, though I knew this was a lie. You were as likely to hear the same story told, more or less, in any town, from here to the south coast. I thought so, once. But then my father, Neam, stopped, sniffed. His father had been dead ten years. He knew the forest better than his own roof, so when the light began to fade and he had still not returned, I refused to believe he was lost but he was not as sure a rider as he had been in his youth. And his hands, I worried he had fallen from his horse or caught his head on a low branch, or the bowl shook in Nehem's hands and I took it from him. As I waited I thought of all manner of cruel ends for him, but then I heard his horse blowing outside and there he was, still in the saddle, swaying, though not from the palsy. I pulled him down into my arms and the stink of the whisky on his breath made me reel. When I had him lying under the covers, and somewhat sobered, he began to speak. He had been chasing a deer, heedless to where it was taking him, when he stumbled into a clearing. There were shapes beneath the grass, as if the walls of a hut had long ago fallen and been buried. In the centre of the clearing was a tree, but not a tree. It moved. Niam described a sinuous motion with his arm. I curled up my fingers and stroked him as I imagined the tree on the rock by the river had touched the witch. Nehem's eyes closed and I thought the sedative I had sprinkled in his wine had taken him to sleep. But then they opened again. Half a year later, the palsy became so bad that his body was not his own to use. Then his speech began to fail. My son, he said near the end. The only words left to him, over and over. My son, my son. I've always wondered if he meant me. Niamh yawned and his eyes closed again. I covered him with the blanket and kissed him on the forehead. It was a light sedative. He would be awake by noon. I lashed Nehem's axe over my shoulder, unfettered his horse, and rode away from the rising sun into the forest. As I travelled, I considered Nehem's story. He had told most of it to me in the past, though the last part was new. I wondered about his father. I knew he had come years earlier from a village, a day's ride in the direction I now headed, though that village was abandoned now. It was the tree impregnated the witch, I thought. Did Neum's father, in some way, feel a bond with this thing in the forest? If so, why? Had he lain with the witch in his youth? I pulled the canteen from the saddlebag and splashed my face with water. It was stupid, of course. Whatever Niam's imagination had layered over the memory of his father's death was of no concern to me. The forest had started to reclaim the path to the dead village. Neam's horse stepped over vines and around shrubs. But the path was mostly clear and I made good time. I stopped at noon, where the path forded a shallow river. While Neom's horse nosed at the grass, I took a heel of bread and went walking. Somewhere nearby, I was sure, was the rock in the river bend. I turned back when I'd eaten, not wanting to leave the horse too long. I crossed the river and followed the path for the rest of the day. As the sun was setting, I came to a fork in the road. The path to the right was wide and clear. The leftward path was barely wide enough to ride. The trees that hemmed it in were a kind that I had not seen before. Black barked, branches ending in spikes. I nudged Neom's horse left. The black trees formed a roof above the path. Before long my horse nickered and would go no further. I continued on foot, my steps and increasingly ragged breathing were the only sounds. I leaned upon the heavy axe. I was a much larger man now than when I had last lain with Neum. The path turned abruptly to the right, and I found myself standing before a clearing. The moon fought free of cloud, and the tree appeared as if it had only just now flashed into existence. It stretched across a clearing easily as large as the town square. It was cold here. My breath clouded as I looked up. A tree it seemed to be, but there were no leaves upon its branches. Rather than coarse bark, its limbs were white and smooth. It looked like something that had been hauled from the depths of the sea. Around the edges of the clearing, several ranks of trees lay smashed into the loam, exposed roots clawing the sky, and I knew they had been pushed. The witch's child had grown. Of her hut there was no sign. It had long ago been overrun, or perhaps something whispered at the back of my mind consumed i was less terrified than exhausted my breathing was still desperate from the walk and the axe lay heavy in my arms i could be asleep in my bed or Niem's, but then i saw gaben again wiping away snot with the back of his hand come from all over ma'am says you're the best i ran my thumb over the edge of the blade then suddenly jerked it back held it close to my face The fat drop of blood looked black and diseased in the moonlight. One of the tree's pale limbs moved towards me, and as it did, I could see a vein raised on its surface, pulsing slightly. It brushed gently against my leg. I do not know whether it was exhaustion or my own curiosity, but I did not pull away. I thought of this creature's father, reaching out to the witch, for what? Did it feel a bond with the nature in the woman? I placed my hand upon the limb and it was warm to the touch. I ran my hand over it, as if I were exploring Niam's flesh. Then I brought the axe high above my head and brought it down upon the limb. The axe bit deep into the wood, further than I had expected. I lost my balance and went tumbling. I landed heavily and lost the air from my lungs. The tree moaned then, low and mournful, louder every moment as I struggled to breathe. I rolled over onto my back. I had severed the limb almost entirely, the last quarter of it hung only by a scrap of skin-like bark. It dragged behind as the rest of it raised up into the air, far above my head. Something fell from the wound onto my chest, and it had none of the heavy slowness of sap. Though it appeared white in the moonlight, it had the warmth and consistency of blood. Finally I sucked air into my lungs and rolled away. The limbs slammed down where I had lain just moments earlier. The speed of the thing was astonishing. I knew I would not get another chance. I jumped to my feet and brought the axe down again, and the limbs separated with a crunch. Then I turned and ran, blind of what direction save that it was away. The earth shook once, twice. I risked a glance behind me and saw the two limbs that had struck the ground curving back to wrap around the trunk like an embrace. I waited, hidden beneath a black tree. Though spines dug into my back, I could not move. My breath was ragged, my mouth dry. If I had been able to, I would have run then, but I was exhausted and I had come so very far. I would not give in to terror, not now, when I was so close. When When I once more crept close to the clearing, the tree had lifted the injured limb high and straight, it loomed above its surroundings like a tower. Another limb was gently stroking the amputated part. Root shifted, raising the ground. There was a sound, a low, helpless mourn. It took a few moments before I understood what I was hearing. The tree was sobbing. Both the fallen branch and the axe lay in the centre of the clearing. When the tree's limbs had remained still for three score heartbeats, I snuck as close as I dared then took a deep breath and sprinted towards them. I grabbed the end of the limb and pulled. At first nothing happened. I had bet wrong. Not for the first time, but definitely the last. Another limb raised itself into the sky as I had earlier raised the axe. There was a tearing sound, as if the amputated part had already put down fresh roots. Then my boots gained solid purchase on the wet earth, and I began to drag it behind me. Something tore in my back, I screamed in pain but did not drop the limb. But then I felt a rush of air behind me. I dove away, the limb smashed down where I had been standing, catching the fallen branch and flipping it away in the direction of the forest. I followed, crawling as fast as I could, the taste of earth on my tongue, only standing again when I was beyond the wall of toppled trees and back in the forest. I did not attempt to retrieve Niamh's axe. I struggled, hauling my prize behind me. There was nothing but the cries of the wood, the agony in my spine and the thump hiss as I took another step and pulled the limb again. An eternity later I found the strength to raise my head from the track and saw my horse tethered a few paces away. I found some dead branches, fashioned a halfway decent travois from them and secured the still twisting limb with rope. The horse pulled the extra load skittishly. Exhaustion caused me to nearly topple from the saddle several times. I finally emerged from the woods to see the stars above me like a banner. Weeping followed me all the way back to the city. I had an arrangement with a widow, a seamstress. In exchange for particular favours, I was allowed to lodge in a small attic room. A pallet stuffed with rotting straw lay in the corner beneath the window. On the other side of the room, a brazier hung from the ceiling. Apart from that, the entire space was given over the construction and storage of marionettes. The severed branch lay in the centre of the floor, twisting back on itself now and then like a worm stranded after rain. All I wanted to do was close my eyes and let sleep pull me down. But it had to be tonight or not at all. I filled the brazier with fresh coals and set to work. I leaned the branch against my workbench and drew a saw across it. The wailing rose as I cut, louder now in the confines of my room than during the journey. I wrapped rags around my head when the sound became too much to bear, But it did no good. I lay the pieces I had cut on my workbench and reached for more precise tools, chisel and plane and bradawl. My hands were numb as I rubbed them together to force the drill bit into the wood. Sawdust stung my nostrils. I threaded wire through new cut holes and drew the pieces tight. Even in my exhausted state, my hands knew their work well. Morning light spilled through the window. Somehow I had slept, still sitting upright. The result of my labours lay on the bench, its limbs akimbo like a man fallen from a roof. A marionette, no different to any of the others I'd crafted over the years, or at least it seemed, until one of its legs began to twitch, then the other. My marionette squirmed, each section of its arms and legs pulling against the wire joints. I had done it. I whooped in joy, and as I did, the marionette's head turned and regarded me. The fire was nearly out, but I pulled the poker from the still-glowing embers in the brazier. I lay it against the workbench in a tendril of black smoke rose. The Duke's Palace would be open soon. It was time to teach the creature to dance. I took a melody I had used to entertain the children and discarded the lyrics, some sop about a mouse and a lion, replacing them with some that would suit the performance I would present. There was once a lonely marionette who had a soul but not freedom yet, his only wish was a way to see, his tethering strings cut away from a he. It was not a good song, but it would suffice. I composed more verses, tracing the marionette's journey to freedom. As I sung, I slapped the flat of my hand on the workbench, beating out the rhythm. After I had run through all the verses a couple of times, I picked up the poker. There was once a lonely marionette. I touched the poker to the sole of the creature's left foot, It squirmed away with a screech of pain that nearly made me lose the rhythm. Who had a soul? Smoke rose from the creature's right foot, but not freedom yet. I ran the side of the poker down the creature's body. Its posture, as it curled in pain, resembled a bow. The creature learned quickly. When I was finished, I sanded away the worst of the burn marks and reached for my paints. I drove nails into its hands and feet, pinning it to the desk. I would use the holes for strings later. I must have been thinking of Neum. I painted the creature's body to make it appear as it were dressed in a green jerkin and brown leggings, like some oversimplified woodsman from a child's story. My performance would start with the creature tied to a device, just like any marionette, leading the audience to believe that this was the full extent of the act. Then in the second verse, I would show them the scissors I had purloined from the seamstress. I would cut the strings and my beautiful creature would continue to dance. My training had been effective. I hummed my melody as I painted, and though it was pinned to the bench, I could see the creature's arms and legs struggling to move as I had forced it to. I painted a harlequin's face on the front of the creature's head. As I waited for the paint to dry, I threw open the window and the sounds of the waking city reached me. A creak of a slow-turning cartwheel. The squeal of a hinge protesting as a door was thrown wide. The steady tapping of a beggar's cane on cobbles. All sounds of wood in motion and put to work. From behind me came the staccato clatter of the creature's foot against the workbench and the unceasing sobbing. The city was full of the sounds of wood, but there had never been any like those my creature was making. The peephole slid open, and the eye that appeared behind it was as bloodshot as the sun in the morning sky. Fuck off, said the guard and closed it again. I resumed pounding the door. After a while the peephole opened again and a different voice said, we have no need of further conjurers, singers, dancers, raconteurs or soothsayers, nor historians, wrestlers, bear baiters, mummers or any kind of performance fucking artist. I took off my hat and put on my best smile. I would not be so bold as to trouble you for anything so mundane. True, I bring you a marionette, I lifted the lid of the box. The creature twisted, sensing the sun. It bent back upon itself and scraped against the velvet lining. I waved my fingers, showing the guard there were no wires involved. The mewling of the creature was loud in my ears. Surely the guard heard it. The door opened. I think you'd better come in. Revels were not scheduled to start until late afternoon. From the condition of the guards, they had been sampling the Duke's ale for a good few hours already. The guard who ushered me down a passage and into the Duke's great hall had decorated his helmet with the same flowers that covered the walls. On the far side of the room, a small fat man was shouting at a servant who had somehow become stuck, gripping the rough bricks with one hand, trying not to drop the flowers he held in the other. Most of his weight was balanced on the back of a chair. The guard called. "'Another audition, sir?' "'Of course.' The fat man grabbed the chair and pulled it towards us, leaving the servant on the wall to scramble for footing on the rough bricks. Because we are clearly suffering a dearth of entertainers.
2: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans.
4: I was so tired it was only when he reached us and sat down with a heavy sigh that I recognised him. Bontim, the Duke's master of revels. He pulled a small hourglass from his pocket and placed it by his feet. You have until this runs out. Performing for children in the market, I had never suffered nerves, but this was the revels' master, besides which I had only stolen scratches of sleep over the past few days. My hands, suddenly greasy with sweat, "'slipped as I tried to open the case. "'I could hear Bonteam's hands drumming on the chair. "'I pulled the creature from the case "'and balanced it on its wooden feet. "'It's a puppet. "'Marionette,' I muttered under my breath "'as I untangled the strings. "'I tapped my foot and hummed. "'It had seemed loud enough under the low roof of my lodgings, "'but here in the expanse of the Duke's hall, "'it was drowned under the banging of hammers, "'the screech of tables dragged across the floor.' the surly curses of soldiers turned labourers. I twisted my right wrist. Strings pulled at the creature's arms and legs, and it began its ragged dance. As rehearsed, the pretense that the creature was mere marionette would continue for another verse, but already there was more sand in the bottom of the hourglass than the top. I'd have to improvise. i reached for the scissors I'd hidden in a secret pocket at the back of my jacket. They were gone. My smile was desperate and thin, as I dug frantically at my jacket with my left hand. At the same time, my right worked the device, trying to ensure the creature's dance did not falter. Without the scissors, I wouldn't be able to flamboyantly cut the strings and usher in the real act, the creature revealed, dancing by itself. Without the scissors, I was no more than a puppeteer. So intent was I on these tasks, I failed to notice that I had stopped humming. Then I saw the hourglass. Bonteam exhaled and rubbed his hand over the balding spot on the back of his head. Without a word, he turned and walked away. The guard had returned to the door. As I stood, numb, a pair of servants carrying a bench between them crashed past, crushing the hourglass underfoot. I was left alone in the centre of the hall. The creature twisted on its ropes. I had failed. I stumbled through the streets. Rage blind me at the ignorance of Bonteam at the guards who sneered as I ran from the hall, at myself. After everything I had done, as I pushed through the crowds already assembling, images kept surfacing in my mind. Neom's collarbone, slick with sweat, the pale limbs of the witch tree moving in the moonlight, holding down the witch tree branch while I cut into its living flesh. All of it wasted effort. The scissors were still resting on my workbench, unless they'd fallen free somewhere in the streets. I still grasped the manipulator in my right hand, and the creature jostled behind me, dangling from its strings, arms raised as if in benediction. I pushed people out of the way, as if I was still in the forest, and they were nothing more than branches in my path. A child appeared from between the stalls, and I cuffed him away. Only when he cried out did I notice it was Gaben. He fell onto a table loaded with oranges. When he wiped the back of his hand across his face, I saw blood. I did not stop to help him to his feet. I reached my lodgings, slammed the door behind me and threw the creature on the workbench. Rabian hung from his hook, mocking me with the smile I'd painted on him myself. I tore him from his place and flung him across the room, where he clattered against the low roof. I stalked over to the marionette and broke him across my knee. I did not stop until I had destroyed it all, the marionettes, the foolish costumes they wore, the sets and props the paints and varnishes that comprise their empty expressions. I screamed as I did so, a guttural rage, as if I were giving voice to the creature's screams that had haunted me since I brought Nehem's axe down. The creature turned its head as I thrashed about the room, watching as I spat and tore and wept. Finally, when there was nothing more to break, I collapsed on my pallet, strings cut, into a dreamless sleep. I slept through the revels and woke late in the afternoon the next day every part of my body screaming protest at my recent exertions. There was the smell of smoke in the breeze. I flung the shutters wide. A rope of black rose from the eastern gate. I heard unsheathed steel and the screaming of horses. Upon my workbench, where the creature had lain the night before, lay nothing but tangled strings. My saw was gone. The creature was a fast learner. It had watched me while I destroyed my art. And in the same way I had taught it to dance... "'Now I taught it something else. "'I could imagine what it had done, "'bringing my sword to the witch tree "'in the same way I had taken my axe. "'I rushed down the stairs, "'flung open the door and ran downhill, "'through the square, toward the eastern gate. "'I could see them now, an army of creatures, roughly hewn. "'They ran in packs across the battlements. "'I saw a soldier caught with no way of escape. "'They attacked him in a swarm. "'I heard the sound of wood beating upon bone.' When the creatures dispersed, there was nothing but a red smear on the brick. Then I saw, behind the gate, a bone-white limb stretching far above the wall. Its end was twisted into an imitation of a fist, and it grasped Nehem's axe, held backwards. The limb slammed down on the wall. Soldiers and masonry tumbled to the street below. The height of the limb could only mean one thing. The witch-tree was walking. I turned and ran back up the hill, and when I reached my lodgings I bolted the door, knowing full well the futility of the action. It is louder now, the sound of battle. The streets are full of carts. The rich have fortunes piled up and drawn by horses. The poor drag what they can, or simply run, leaving everything. All are equally doomed. The eastern gate is still ablaze, and the other exits are choked with traffic. I found the scissors lying on the floor. I had nudged them, no doubt in my haste to leave for the audition. I have them now, gripped tightly in my left hand. They are good scissors. In the hours ahead I will have need of something strong and sharp. They are
3: coming. That was Grant Stone's Wood, as read to us by Trevor Gench. Our second story will be from Paul Jessop. We've heard from Mr. Jessop before. I believe it was a story or two from his collection Glass Coffin Girls. Paul Jessup is a critically acclaimed award-winning author, poet, and playwright. He has appeared in many different magazines, anthologies, and has a few books placed out in small and large publishing houses alike. You can attempt to email him at paul.jessup at Link to his homepage will be in the show notes. His story tonight will be Mudskin, which originally appeared in Postscripts magazine back in 08.
0: Mudskin by Paul Jessup. Ma planted her gods in the garden, planted them down deep into the troubled soul of the earth. She wanted to see what would grow there with the gods as seeds, wanted to see what roots would gobble up the ground, what flowers would search for sunlight. When she was done, she packed it in and spread her own blood across the moist soil. She heard them whisper in the shadow of the garden. Everything will be better now, she thought. Gods are nothing but trouble anyway. This last batch of them caused her all sort of misfortune and grief, just for their own personal pleasure. Greedy lot, she thought. Selfish lot. All gods should be buried and be done with. Ma went into her kitchen and wiped the greasy mud from her hands over the top of her sink. She watched the black stick ooze on down into the bucket below, clumping and glopping together. She thought of molding this discarded earth, thought of turning it into something she would like. "'Not a god. Not this time. No. She would make a son, maybe. Or a daughter. Someone to keep her and Pa's company on the cold days, or to help with the gardens on the warm days. Pa wouldn't mind. He's been thinking the same thing. She knew. Pa was in the walls of the house, crawling around and looking for spare spirits that might be chained to us and help out with some chores. He was good at catching a sprite or two, and then they would at least give a good day's labor before expiring.' She heard him rattle around for a bit, and then saw his toothless skull emerge from a hole in the ceiling. His beard roped around and down like brown moss, his eyes wild and filled with glee. "'Ma!' he called out. "'I caught one. One of them little facts. Right here. I got him good. Ro-hee-hee-ha!' Down came a sack from the ceiling, wriggling and lively as it smacked against the ground. The old man shimmied himself right behind— moving with a speed and a grace well beyond his age. This one's a good one, too. We can milk him for magic while he works. Get out the ether pump. Let's get going. Ma sighed. He was always this excited at the start of a new project. Almost a tire just being around him, watching him move and dance about, singing and laughing. She wished some days he would just act his age and settle down for a bit. Live out the last few years calm-like, relaxed. Ma waddled into the back room and pulled out the pump and drug it back to him. Heavy bastard it was. If they weren't fresh out of spirit slaves, she would have had one of them do it. Oh well. It didn't take long to hook the tubes and pumps up to the ale folk and get it working. He was a curious little bastard. With skin the color of warm bread and eyes the color of milk. She was so hungry these days she just wanted to eat him. She refrained for a bit and instead waited as the pump did its thing, and they got a few more gallons of magic to last them through the winter. When the machine was off, and the elf folk lay slumped on the ground, half awake, she turned to Pa and looked him dead on into his ancient eyes. "'I'm going to use some of that magic to make us a kin. "'Out of that mud over there. "'It's god mud, so it should work.' Pa shook his head. "'I see. I see. See, buried them, eh? Makes sense.' They are useless anyhow. Why did you even build them in the first place? Ma shrugged and started forming the slick mud into a little body. She clumped together arms and legs, and then a little head, the excess oozing between her fingers. Just felt spiritual, is all. Sometimes a girl feels the need for gods. Pa nodded. Hope that's all out of your system, then. Ma smiled. For now, at least. For now. She packed in some of the mud. "'finishing up her project. "'She pushed the tips of her fingers into the head, "'tracing eyes and a mouth and some hair. "'Behind her she heard the elf folk twitch "'and moan in uneasy sleep against the floorboards. "'It doesn't take much magic to make something come to life. "'Just a drop or two, a few of the right incantations, "'and Ma could make anything. "'She's made plants and flowers, gods and demons. "'She's made dancing children no more than an inch or two high.' She's made giants and unicorns and all sorts of mystical manifestations. Of course, getting the magic is the trick. You have to get it from a source, be it from a fae or from a dream well. In a dream well, you got it easy. Most of them are never-ending. But if you can't get a dream well, you've got to hunt yourself down one of the elf folk. She was lucky because she married someone who excelled at that sort of thing and the elf folk made good cheap labor as well. A winning situation no matter how you cut it. Even though the farm was small, an extra hand was always needed. The little boy still contained traces of mud on his skin, still had bits of earth under his nails and behind his eyes. Overall, though, he looked as normal and as human as they came. Ma placed him at about eight years old. Pa thought something more like ten or twelve. They called him Vady, and showed him how to do the chores. He didn't talk very much, but he could listen and think and lift heavy things. Every so often, Ma would have to go and teach him a thing or two, show him what most of us take for granted. Some days he would have his skin slip off, or an arm tumble down, and Ma would have to pack some new mud, use up some new magic just to keep him together for a little while longer. Ma loved cleaning up his mud tracks across the house, and loved the sound of his voice, in his bedroom playing at all hours. Pa took kind to him, and loved the extra hand in catching the elf-folk as they crawled through the walls and burrowed underground, trying to escape them. Sometimes at night, Ma would hear Vady in the garden. She would look out the window and see him talking to the plants, whispering to one of them, rubbing his fingers along the edge of their leaves. She wondered if he was just playing pretend- or if he heard them talking back to her. At these moments, she wondered what kind of magic he was made from. She wondered if it were unstable magic, breaking away at his mind and body. He had no soul, that she knew. Yet she felt like he should have one. Maybe that's why he did crazy stuff, Ma thought. Because he didn't have a soul. She vowed to get him one. Get him one someday soon. One of the elf folk could live without it. They didn't need a soul anyway not know how. And it would go to a good home, to a good little clay doll in need of one. Then they would be a whole family. When she ran the idea past Pa, he thought she was crazy. That boy don't need a soul, he said. He's just a clay thing, is all. Just god dirt in the shape of a boy. That magic may make him seem real, but he's nothing, just nothing. Best not to work against the natural order of things. She knew he was right, deep down inside, but still his oddities bothered her. She wanted him to be a normal boy, someone they could be proud to show the neighbors or the folks in town, not some strange, soulless freak that didn't even know proper manners. Ma decided to see who the boy was talking to at night. She snuck behind and listened quietly from the shadows in the doorframe. He could not sense her. He had no soul to sense with so he kept on whispering and talking and paying her no mind. She saw him kneeling in that mud, caressing the flowers. She heard his meek clay voice whispering the names of the gods she had buried there. Is he praying, she thought, praying to those damned creatures? She leaned closer and listened harder. He was asking for help. He was asking them to destroy him, to let him leave this prison of clay he was trapped in. She held her breath tears in her eyes. She did not want to believe her ears. He loved being with them. He had to. He was all she had. She stomped out into the moonlight, her round body gray like a stone. Vady lad, what you doing out here? Vady turned and looked at her. His face was darker, dirtier, mud face in that moonlight. He had been crying, and it washed the makeshift skin away into mud puddles beneath him. Nothing, Ma. Nothing. Just talking to the plants. The elf folks say they like it. Ma stared hard at him. She hated him for praying to those little selfish bastards. She hated herself for planting them rather than destroying them. She hated the elf folk her helping him in this time of crisis. Forget what they tell you. They are a lying folk. Not a true word ever passed their lips. Come inside. I'll make you a snack before bed. He looked up at her, his eyes like her fingerprints in mud. Okay, he said. She watched him walk back into their house, making sure he went inside. When she was sure he was out of earshot, she leaned over to the dirt and put her ear to the ground. The ground whispered, talking to her, sending her promises she could not trust. You better leave him alone, she muttered to the earth, if you know what's best for you. The next day, all the elf folk were gone. Ma and Pa searched the house looking for where they could have gone. They weren't anywhere, not even hiding in the walls or anything like that. When they asked Fadie what happened, he just smiled and pointed at the trees. He stopped talking after that moment, and they didn't know why. They kept trying to get him to say anything, to tell them why he pointed at the trees, but nothing. Nothing would be spoken. Ma started to think that Vady was the one who set the elf-folk free. She insinuated such from time to time, but he would not talk, and Pa couldn't find any other elf-folk. Not in the house, not in the barn, not in the forest outside. It was like they all up and left without warning, leaving the world empty of their kin. She caught Vady outside again, talking to the plants. She stomped over the mud and the rain drenching her clothes in colors of gray and brown in the moon shadows. She picked his clay body up. It slick beneath her fingers. She could see a strange glint in his eye as the whispering from below began to echo through the trees around her. He smiled, a smile made of fingerprints. Stop talking to those gods, you hear me? They are nothing but a curse on us. On all of us. I should have killed them long ago. I should have unmade them. He looked up at her, the rain making the clay skin of his face lopsided. Why did you make them in the first place? Why you give them power over us, and then just bury them? You think the power you gave them goes away just because they in the ground? Things grow in the ground. I know. I am ground. I am dirt. They talk through me. I talk through them. We grow. Ma dropped him his body splashing against the plants. She couldn't tell his body from the mud anymore. She wanted smack some sense into him, but held back due to the love she once held. She heard movement above her, like the leaves were alive and breathing. We all growing now, all us earthly spirits. We grow and grow. Grow so big you can't hold us in any more. And she saw him. Saw him pull the mud from the ground and pack it onto his body made him grow bigger, wider, taller. She trapped her breath into her lungs. She wondered if she had any magic back in the house she could use. If Pa could catch another elf folk, they could drain for power. She took a step back. The trees above her moved, alive with faces and eyes peering out from behind the thin fingers of branches and leaves. "'The elf folk, she said in a half-whisper. "'Are you massing with those demons?' I warned you, they are full of lies. They will corrupt you and destroy us. Everything they touch decays. He pulled more mud onto his body. They helped me see what you and Pa are. Nothing but leeches. Nothing but people who build, but without responsibility to what they create. You made me, but you use me as a tool. You made those gods, and you discarded them like old toys. How many others have you built and left without you, without your love or life that sustains them? She could not speak. She had no magic, no way of holding him in. He was tall now, much taller than her. She wanted to run, but was frozen in her spot. She heard the elf-folk laughing at her from the trees. Go back in the house, Ma. Go upstairs. Get into bed with Pa. Sleep. Rest well for tonight. "'Tomorrow, you work for me.' "'He towered over her, his head crowned by the moon. "'She took one look at him, at the elf-folk, "'as they crawled through the trees and ran inside. "'She did not look to see if he followed. "'She did not want him to follow. "'She hoped that she would never see him again. "'The next day, Ma and Pa were chained to each other by the neck. "'Their house were infested with elf-folk, "'their bodies crawling across wall and ceiling and floor.' their eyes peeking out from behind cupboards and paintings. Pa's blood was boiling, but he said no word. They had gotten themselves in this trouble. He was certain they'll be getting out. Vady had taken root in the kitchen, making it his own personal office and sanctuary. Daily he grew, packing himself with mud and using borrowed magic from the elf-folk to keep himself together. There he would sit with his council of elf-folk and the gods he had dug up from the garden discussing treachery in the lying tongue of magical creatures. All over the walls were maps decorated with orange and black knives. All over the floors were ivy and tree roots, breaking up the floorboards and crawling over the furniture. Ma was forced to make him food and tend to the garden he now grew. Pa was forced to pray to the gods and wait on the elf-folk every second, giving all his strength to those he had drained of their very life-essence. At night, Ma and Pa planned and plotted. They used a language they invented. It had no words, and talked using a combination of finger movements and rapping on the floor. They wanted to keep their conversation secret, keep them safe from prying eyes and ears. They hated their servitude, and each day their hatred for their own son grew and grew. It was easy to hate him, the way he beat and burned them. He wasn't even a real boy. He was just some soulless mound of clay sculpted to look human, and now he didn't even look human. He towered in size, his packed mud skin sliding from his body with each movement. Twigs and leaves poked out from his shoulders and knees. When he talked, you could see a nest of insects hiding in his throat and in his intestines. He had transformed himself into a mockery of humanity, and that made it all the easier for his creators to want to destroy him ma crept down to the kitchen all around her slept the elf folk their bodies on the ceiling and floors curled up into nooks under the table at the foot of the kitchen table she saw vady asleep sitting up his clay eyes closed thumbprints pa crept behind her dragging the ether pump slowly behind them trying not to make a sound each time they went past an elf folk Pa hooked up the pump and nozzles of the ether vacuum as silently, as he could, and turned the machine on, sucking magic out of each and every one of them. He did it carefully so as not to wake the others. Ma saw the clay gods, all arranged behind Vati in a chaos of vines. They were cause of all the trouble. They fed Vati lies, gave him promises they could not keep. She walked up, her fingers wrapping around a clay neck. Pa leaned behind, ready and eager for what was to happen. A smash in the ground was covered in broken clay. Pa clapped his hands together and did a little jig, barely containing his joy. She picked up another and another, smearing the ground with god debris. Around her the elf folk awoke, angry and drained of all their power. Pa still did his jig, and Ma finished off the last of the gods their whispers and promises dying out with each break of clay body. The yellow folk buzzed around them as Vady woke up, looking at the ground in horror. What have you done? What have you foolish mortals done? Ma scoffed. Something I should have done a long time ago. You best unchain us now and let us go free, or we'll destroy you as well. Rage stung in the eyes of Vady. You have no power over me. You cannot unmake me. Nobody can. "'I am cursed to walk this world, "'cursed to grow with the deep earth. "'You two get back to your room now, "'and I will deal with you in the morning.' "'Ma laughed. "'Oh, I can unmake you. "'I can take you from this world in a second. "'See all these powerless creatures? "'We've sucked them dry. "'Ain't nothing you can do about it, either. "'Best just to own up and let us control you again.' Beatty glanced around the room. He saw the ether pump glowing with stolen magical power. Around them, the weary elf folk crawled back into wall and nook, exhausted and trying to hide. They had no magic to speak of and didn't want to become slaves yet again. Just destroy me, destroy me! I am sick of living, sick of not having a soul. Just do it already. Ma grinned as Pa shook his toothless head. Pa opened up the back of the ether pump and pulled out some magic. It glowed liquid blue, moving along first like a living thing. No, no. Not that easy, my boy. Not after all the damage you done. Not that easy at all. Fady backed up against the wall. He looked towards the elf folk, a pleading look in his eyes. You have to lend me your strength, he said to them. We can stop them, stop them forever and do what we planned. We can destroy all the humans. Never have to worry again about being ensorcelled and drained of our own life. They moved towards him, but they were too worn and frail to be able to do anything. Beatty screamed and smashed the dishes. He picked up a chair and threw it at Ma, hitting her square within the chest. She hit the ground with a cough, her ribs bruised but otherwise unharmed. The magic was thrown on Beatty's face. He clutched his skin the blue crawling over the caked mud and twigs. He thrashed about, trashing the table with his big stone fists. Moonlight sprung from the holes he'd punctured in the walls, coating the elf folk with an eerie blue. First, Ma said, you're going to do is get small, real small, none of this big giant shit. She chanted under her breath, a low and murmuring chant. It sounded like the hum of butterfly wings in her lips, trapped and never able to escape. He shrunk as she chanted, getting smaller and smaller. Soon he was boy-sized again, helpless-sized. She stopped her words mid-chant. And now, you're going to be trapped in that form. No more growing for you, boy. The chant changed to a song, long and high, like a bird being shot as it sang. Ma's arms danced in the air the moon shadows stretching out far past their length as the elf-folk screamed and crawled up the walls. The blue of the magic danced on his form, creating seals that would keep him in that shape forever. Pa laughed and spun around, spraying magic across the walls as Ma chanted. This time the chant was loud and booming, and her voice was that of a man's. The walls shrunk and grew, the light spinning in circles. All along the skin of the elf-folk and Vady imprinted mystical seals, cages of supernatural power. Ma snorted when she was done and stood up. Her ribs still hurt some, but she could ignore it when she had to. The pain would be gone in a day or two, so not much damage there. Paul laughed and patted the side of the ether pump. Ma, he said, I think we're going to be stocked up on magic for quite a long time. She smiled and nodded. And we'll have enough servants to keep for at least a year. Don't any of you be getting wise ideas, not now or soon. You've seen what happens when you get us mad. Just do as we say. The elf folk crawled and tried to flee, but they were trapped in the house, enchanted. Ma and Pa smiled. It was going to be a good year. A good year after all. Pa walked over to Vady pulling a key from the table. Pa unlocked his and Ma's chains and then stood over Vady, the chain dangling to the ground from his fist. He snapped it around Vady's neck. Vady looked up, his face remorseful and full of fright. He whimpered as Pa beat him with the rest of the chain. The moon glinted off of Pa's eyes, making them look like lit holes in his skull. You best listen to us, boy. You have a lot of work to do. He dragged the body up the stairs. Ma walked behind, looking at the elf folk as she walked upstairs. Everything was right again, she thought. Everything makes sense once more.
3: That was Paul Jessop's Mudskin, as read to us by Antoinette Bergen. Antoinette Bergen is twisted and dark, sarcastic and pessimistic, weird and demented. All of these things combined somehow make her absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen and probably won't harm you if you follow her. Thanks again, Antoinette. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.